Hello, welcome to the University of Brighton podcast. I'm Richard Newman. My guest this week is Dr. Zoe Bowden from the School of Applied Social Science. Zoe teaches on the Psychology with Counseling Studies course and researches relationships and mental health. And as we all deal with lockdown and the gradual easing of restrictions, we thought it would be a good idea to talk about relationships during the current situation. Hi, Zoe. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Quite a lot to talk about. And uh, but before we really get going, let's get to know your background first. How have you arrived at, at this point? Kind of quite a circuitous route, I suppose you could say. Um, so I started out my first degree was in dance studies. Um, I grew up wanting to be a dancer. Kind of quite quickly realised that wasn't going to work out. But I went and worked in the arts industries for for quite a while, um, working with some amazing dance companies. Um, doing some company management, some tour management, um, doing a little bit of outreach and um, sort of working with different groups. Um, and around that time, I started to feel like, okay, maybe this isn't quite what I had sort of set out for my life. So I decided to do um, a psychology degree um, in, in the evenings at Birkbeck. So I was working full time in the, in the dance industry um, and then in the evening studying. And from there, luckily, I got the chance to do a PhD. And um, I sort of stepped into academia. And so then I finished my PhD, worked a little bit in um, various universities in London, and came to the University of Brighton uh, just last January. Yeah. So what drew you to psychology then when you decided that working in the dance industry wasn't for you? What drew you to psychology? Do you know, it's, it's hard to pinpoint quite how I got there. Um, I know that at the time I was kind of considering maybe doing law. I had, um, I'd had a friend who'd done law and she seemed to think that was interesting. Um, I think I sort of was aware that I was very intrigued about how people um, live, how they make sense of their lives, um, how they can change through therapy. So I think in those early days, I, I thought I might want to become a clinical psychologist, um, which we find um, lots of our students do think that they, that's what they want to do and start off with. I suppose I wanted to make a difference, as many people do. Um, yeah, and I thought, well, I'll just, do, I'll just do the first year. In those days, it didn't cost £9,000. So <laughs> I thought I'd just do the first year and see how it went. And I fell in love with it. And continued. Cool. It's, a, it's a really popular course. Why do you think there is quite so much interest in it? In psychology, yeah, it's certainly um, increasingly popular, um, I've found. And I think it's just, well, there's many different reasons. I think people are quite keen to understand themselves. So a lot of people coming to psychology courses might come because they have their own experiences of um, difficulties, maybe with their well-being or their mental health or they've seen it within their family or kind of connected issues such as addiction. So often people come after a personal experience. Um, so I think we have that kind of impetus, I guess, to try and understand what makes people tick, how things um, turn out the way they do and, and how to make changes, how to feel better about ourselves and our relationships in our lives. Mm. And, and do you think people treat though that a lot differently now compared to a number of years ago? Have you seen the way that um, mental health and well-being is perceived? You know, since, since you started specialising it, it's, because it's a lot more at the front of people's minds now. People are looking after themselves and looking after others um, a, a lot more than maybe they did, I don't know, even like five, ten years ago. 
Sure, there's definitely um, an increasing openness to talking around mental health, which has got to be a good thing, I think. Um, I think there's also something kind of broader about the kind of the imperative um, into society to kind of to remake ourselves or to become better citizens. So I think there's sort of a broader kind of shift in in this sort of late 20th century and early 21st century to to kind of yeah making ourselves the best version of ourselves. And with that, I think comes an interest in in well-being in the broader sense. Um, let's talk about coronavirus and relationships and um, and mental health. Then it's 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 been really hard for all of us not being able to see family, friends, and um, partners who don't live together. That must be incredibly difficult as well. Um, it will affect us all in in different ways, won't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, there's sort of a strong narrative in the media, um, which certainly may be true for many people that. Um, we're all sort of um, keen to, to get to see our loved ones as soon as possible now that lockdown's easing. Um, but of course, people have unique circumstances. And for some people, lockdown may have actually provided a bit of reprieve or a bit of respite from difficult relationships, maybe with family, or, or perhaps just they might feel that uh, relating in general is stressful. So for some people, actually having kind of less social engagements is is beneficial but of course for others there's that real um isolation that comes with being cut off from broader society and from different networks which can be hugely beneficial mm. we'll focus on that i, I think in 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 a, in a bit about you know the other side to it from your research i guess what are the main sort of long-term benefits of having strong relationships for for that long-term mental health yeah, so we, well, we know from the research that um, relationships can provide a buffer. So they can be a hugely important protective factor, um, supporting people both to, um, to, to talk about, to cope with, to, to manage any um, sort of crisis that might come up. Um, but also it seems that people who have um, at least one kind of positively, what we call positively valence, so kind of an emotionally warm relationship, um, that's stable um, and sort of constructive, a healthy relationship, if you like, um, will be less likely to develop um, more um, complex mental health problems or become suicidal. So we know that relationships are fundamental, really, in, in human well-being. For some, lockdown would have been great for relationships, maybe families seeing each other a bit more when they're in jobs where they may maybe don't see each other much at all. But for others, it, it can put a huge strain on relationships, not being able to get out of the house, not being able to, not having anywhere for themselves. It, it can be difficult. Mm, absolutely. And, and context is so important, isn't it? I mean, um, just to use a personal example, you know, I'm incredibly lucky. I have a, a space which I feel comfortable in. I can take a walk to the beach, which is amazing. Um, for lots of people who may have small children or be in a, um, a house without outside space, you know, that's going to put a huge strain on them kind of practically. And then, of course, the relationships, it's not kind of typical for us to spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week with a certain number of people. So it's, it's bound to put a lot of strain on those relationships. In your sort of professional opinion, in those situations, what, what, what can people do to, to cope with those? How can they create that space how can they make sure that those relationships don't get under strain or, or try and limit the, the damage of that 
Sure. Well, um, there's a number of strategies. One thing I might suggest to um, my clients is to consider trying to negotiate kind of quiet spaces within the house or um, some kind of understanding about um, particular um, time when you might need to be on your own. Obviously, that's almost impossible if you've got very young children, but for many people kind of having those conversations about what they might need before it kind of reaches a crisis point or a crunch point is going to be beneficial because everyone needs to have some time alone, um, some quiet time if they can manage it. Mm. And then coming back to what we were saying just now, I mean, lockdown for some will be absolute hell. I mean, the, the worst, the worst possible thing we've seen increases in domestic violence cases, um, people losing their support networks as well um, at least in person it's trickier to do things online the, the sort of secondary effects of this lockdown have been you know there's something that really needs to be taken into account as well aren't they absolutely so yeah like you say we know women's aid have reported for example um a lot of uh, increase in um calls to their crisis line or visits to their website so we know that um, for certain people, lockdown's been very difficult. Um, LGBTQ charities have talked about the difficulties of coming out during this period for young adults. Um, and just sort of the added strain and pressure, I suppose, um, in, in a context like lockdown of um, trying to negotiate your own um, identity without those typical support um, networks that you might have. So, okay, yes, we can get support um, online and lots of charities have been doing amazing work, kind of reaching out to their client base um, through video conferencing or um, telephone crisis lines. But I think most people would still feel quite cut off from kind of support networks. And obviously for people who might be fleeing and dangerous or abusive or um, unsafe situations, um, lockdown's been incredibly difficult and made that a whole lot harder. How important is it for for us all really to pick up on the smallest cues, I guess, then from colleagues, friends, family, when we're talking to them, making sure and checking in with them really at these times, because, you know, I think a lot of the time people don't maybe check in enough in when we can see each other in person, but you can pick up cues a lot easier when you're actually seeing them face to face. And that's kind of a, a tricky situation that we're all in at the moment, isn't it? To try and not so much intervene, but to sort of you know, offer help, I guess, or someone to talk to if, if you feel that like a friend, family member might need a little bit of it. Yeah, of course. I suppose one of the more optimistic things to come out of lockdown has been the kind of the mutual aid and the kind of the, the collaborative kind of approaches and the, the kind of community spirit, if you like. And I think we can all kind of benefit from doing a bit of that, of thinking about, um, yeah, being there for each other as much as we can. I mean, it's difficult um, when people feel isolated. Often they don't reach out for help. So you're right. It's hard to sometimes see those cues in, um, in loved ones. We talked before recording this podcast as well about uh, one thing you brought up was the difference between loneliness and solitude. Um, can you explain mm -hmm. what data seems to suggest um, who's most vulnerable in that context and maybe how it's a little bit different to what we might think? Yeah, so, well, I suppose there's two different points there. So the first is that generally, I think there's the assumption that if somebody is alone, that they are going to be vulnerable to feeling lonely, they might be in need. 
So I suppose the first thing just to point out that solitude can be a really um, supportive thing. So there's been some research thinking about how um, taking time to kind of withdraw into oneself can be beneficial in terms of um, mental health recovery. So thinking about things like spirituality or um, getting to have a stronger sense of yourself before kind of engaging with others. So solitude can be a beneficial thing to, to do. Um, loneliness though, it, you know, it's been described as, as kind of like hunger. It's, um, it's a painful, distressing experience. And often I think, especially kind of in the media, we think of loneliness as being something that afflicted older adults um, living alone. But actually, um, according to an ONS, so an Office of National Statistics survey that was done in 2018, it was the younger adults, the 16 to 24 year olds, who were reporting the most loneliness. And that might be a group of people who um, typically we might expect to be kind of hanging out in large groups of friends and um, very social, socially networked um, online and in person. But it seems, no, they are, they're experiencing a, a huge amount of loneliness and, and distress around that. Mm. Why, why would you think that might be? Well, um, it's unclear um, without kind of asking them about those experiences, which um, as far as I'm aware, the survey didn't do. But my guess is that it sort of points to that thing that loneliness isn't about how many people you have around you, but rather your ability to connect. So um, connectedness, a sense of belonging, a sense of acceptance, um, all seemed important in thinking about how we kind of sit relationally in our networks. It's not just the number of people. And it would be easy to kind of point to um, like, um, you know, the kind of Insta generation or um, online activities as being kind of the cause for this. And, you know, it, it may be a part, it may have a part to play, it may not. But it seems that for young people, they're not, they're not feeling as connected as we might imagine they are when we read the news. When we all come out of this, whenever that is uh, we've all had to change the way that we live our lives how do you think relationships will change will they change will the way that we interact with people change will our behaviors change what do you think i don't i can only speak kind of on a personal level really um i suppose a few weeks back even maybe even last week you know things seem to change so quickly I might have said that it would be really weird to kind of see people together in a park but this week I see people together in the park and it seems fairly normal mm. so I'm kind of surprised both with how quickly we kind of adapted to being in lock uh, into lockdown and how quickly people are transitioning out of that so I don't know if this is a pessimistic view but I'm, I'm guessing that we we might not kind of change as radically as, as people might have thought at the beginning. Mm. I guess it depends on how much changes in the next few weeks and months, whether we have to go back to the, the, the things that we've had to deal with already in terms of further lockdowns, I guess. But it's interesting to see you know, what you said about that people will bring up a lot about how there's this community spirit, which is, you know, we've seen a little bit more of it since, since we've been in this situation. So, you know, you might, even just say hello to someone that you walk past in the park or on the beach. And that, that, that is something new. And it's something I haven't really seen a lot of in gen people. We don't see a lot of it in this country very much unless you're in the, on a, on a country walk or even just checking in on people in the streets to make sure the vulnerable people that need to have 
shopping delivered or uh, medicine. Do you think we're going to see a little bit more of that in terms of our relationships with, within the community? I want to just draw on, a, on another bit that I remember is that if I go back, I think that the last time we had something like this in terms of a positive community spirit for me was in the London 2012 Olympics and everyone was talking about how everyone was really happy and everyone was talking to each other. And, um, you know, as soon as the Olympics and Paralympics went away, it was very quickly back to normal because we're so desperate to get back to our previous lives. Is there a risk that we don't sort of learn from the, the good things that have come out of this? I suppose it depends how kind of consolidated that is. And I think you're right in thinking about, you know, how much longer this goes on for, but we're talking about kind of huge behavioral changes there. So, you know, I lived in London for 20 years and never talked to anyone ever <laughs> in terms of neighborhood people in my community. Mm. Um, when I moved to Brighton, I had a little bit more of that and certainly lockdown has increased that. So I, I do know more of my neighbors now. I do have more conversations with people. Um, and, I, and I absolutely hope that that does continue. I think it just needs to be embedded um, and in order for it to be taken forward. So yeah, I can be I can be hopeful and optimistic about that. Um, your main areas of, of research, can you tell us about those? Um, and and maybe I don't know even how retrospectively how the coronavirus pandemic may have reshaped some of your views on your own work. So my research focuses on relationships in the context of mental health. Um, typically, I'm looking at complex mental health needs. So people who are experiencing psychosis or suicidality. So um, psychosis, for example, um, we're talking about people who are in kind of quite extreme distress, who perhaps are um, seeing or hearing things that others aren't or holding beliefs that others aren't. Um, and I'm interested to understand their relational networks. Um, so I do research both from the perspective of the person with the lived experience of distress and also kind of who we call the informal carer, so the loved one, um, the sibling, the parent, the partner, um, to understand their perspectives as well. Um, so my current research is actually around uh, mental health medication use mm -hmm. and how relationships impact on that and vice versa. And I was halfway through that project when lockdown started. Right. Um, so certainly uh, the current situation has disrupted my plans a little bit. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if I have enough distance yet to know whether this period is going to change my views on how we relate or um, I think it's very early to tell and of course lots of people are doing research projects right now about about coronavirus and its impact on social isolation and so on um, but yeah it's, it's early days to know what influence that's going to have I think. Mm. Is it a stereotype to assume like a lot of us may do in this country um that there's uh, less of a dependence on mental health medication than uh, other nations where say usa where we see a lot of it what i can say is that evidence shows that prescriptions for mental health medications are increasing especially right. um the antidepressants of course are increasing greatly mm. um i suppose it's an interesting choice of words to think about dependency so um, a lot of the people that I'm talking to in this study are, um, are talking about choices. So um, whether to choose to take a medication um, in spite of sometimes really difficult side effects because actually their quality of life will be better if they do take it. And having um, 
good relationships. In this case, it was um, romantic relationships. So having partners um, available and willing to kind of talk through those decisions um, seemed to be fundamental for people. Yeah, it's really interesting. It'd be really good to see what you what what comes out of that as well when you finally do get to get back round to to that project. We end every podcast with some questions away from your work. So um, let's just fire away with those. The first one would be, what advice would you give to your younger self? Um, I try to look back at my younger self with as much compassion as possible. So my advice would just be, everything's going to be fine. You know, just carry on as you are. You're okay. Cool. Um, If you could pick any other subjects to study at the University of Brighton, what might it be? Yeah, so I, I got quite excited thinking about um, all the different subjects that are available to me at um, Brighton. But I, I narrow it down, I think, to um, something from the School of Art, maybe fashion design, maybe photography. Yeah, something creative. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, what positive changes have you experienced from life in lockdown for you? I've really noticed that I can be really happy with much less than I thought I needed. Uh, less in terms of um, kind of stimulus activities um, and also kind of less in terms of um, consumerism as well. So mm-hmm. yeah, I can survive on less and be pretty happy. Do you think you'll carry that forward as well? <laughs> I'm going to try. <laughs> Um, you, so you haven't been here that long, but can you pick a favourite place in Sussex? Yeah, no, I really haven't um, had much chance to explore. I mean, I've done a little bit around the Downs and along the coast, but the, I can't say it's a favourite place, but it's a place that I do want to visit. Is I started to realise how many vineyards there were around the local area. <laughs> yeah. so I'll definitely be looking forward to that once we're allowed again. Yeah, it sounds good. Um, when lockdown is lifted, if you could give visitors to Brighton and the area a tip of what to do or experience from from your own experiences, what would they be? Yeah, so I imagine lots of people say this, but I think the restaurants, the bars, um, the cafes in Brighton are amazing. I had this um, mistaken idea that when I came down from London, I would miss a lot of kind of London life and I'd be on the train up there all the time, but no, not at all. Um, I absolutely love Brighton. Um, But I would just add a little, extra tip i'm really loving the feminist bookshop on upper north street mm-hmm. which is tiny but has great events and a lovely little vegan cafe as well mm-hmm. and a nice little working space in the basement so that would be my extra tip and we've been working with them for brighton cca as well so we'll put some links as well in the podcast so you can see you can see how we're doing some online bits as well um tell us something about you um something tell us something interesting about you that a lot of people may not know Okay, so I don't know if this is very interesting, but um, as a child, I really wanted to be a weather presenter. That was my big ambition. How long for? Um, I think I held that idea for quite a while. Um, And I think I was primarily drawn to it because I'd seen a a little um, kind of kids documentary about being a weather presenter and they had to um, kind of set up their own camera and do their piece of camera and everything. And I think actually I was kind of intrigued by the the kind of the media and the kind of theatre kind of performance aspects of it rather than the weather. Nice. Um, and if you could pick three people to host at a dinner party, who would they be and why? Sure. So I think I would change my mind on any given day of the week for this, but I'm going to go with um, Amy McBride, who is a novelist, um, who just, I think, writes brilliantly um, about really brutal, difficult things, but incredibly beautifully. 
So she'd be my number one. Um, my second one um, is Virginia Axlein, who actually died in 1988. So this is an ideal dinner party. Um, she is one of the, was one of the pioneers of play therapy. And actually, in answer to your very early question, I read her book, Dibs, A Search for Self, when I was probably about 17, mm -hmm. which is a case study of a child um, going through a series of play therapy sessions. Um, and I think that was probably quite instrumental in getting me interested in therapy. And then my final choice is going to be Nan Golding, the photographer. Um, because I just, I love her work. Um, I love the idea that um, she was given a camera when she was 15 and she just started taking photos. So I think those three people together would have a lot to say about creativity and power and gender and kind of that notion of becoming and, um, and how to deal with trauma as well. Sounds good. Thanks so much for coming on, Zoe. That's it for this week's podcast. But if you'd like to subscribe or listen to previous episodes, please do via Apple Podcasts, Spotify and YouTube. Thanks for listening.